Hello, hello, and welcome to another podcast episode of Overpowering Emotions, where I talk all things anxiety, emotion regulation, resilience. We are still on our holiday break right now. It goes by so very fast, but for many of us, I know I still have two weeks left, and so I really want to make the most of it, even though big dinners and big days pass by so fast, but we still have the opportunity to enjoy our time with our friends, with our families, and helping everyone instill mindfulness. This is a perfect time. How can we enjoy our moments? And instilling that mindfulness we know is helpful long-term for bigger things like emotion regulation, attention, anxiety, all the things that I talk about. So Today's episode is a recast of another podcast where I was guest on Mindfulness Off the Cushion, and I hope by listening you will be able to pick up some ideas just in how you can sprinkle in some mindfulness. Enjoy this episode, enjoy the rest of your holidays, and I will talk to you again in the new year. I promise you, the content in this episode with Dr. Caroline Buzenko is likely some of the best content we've ever had, especially if you're a parent. In fact, I would say this is the closest we've ever come to a parenting episode. As we talked to Dr. Buzenko, my mind kept wandering back to my youth. And I was filled with this sort of longing, a longing for wisdom earlier in my life, a wisdom that just was not there. And of course, knowing that I will not be going back in time, I know that I can turn that longing or that yearning into action today not just by practicing present moment awareness myself, but by planting these seeds with my children, helping them understand that they have choices about some concepts that I never really understood was in fact something that one could make a choice about. I didn't understand the benefits of choosing it So if you're a parent, please stay tuned. I cannot wait for you to hear some of the tools and tips and practices that Dr. Buzenko shares with us in this episode. She talks about how we need to be proactive in incorporating mindfulness into every activity, building emotional literacy along with mindfulness, and using tools like emotion cards and emotion wheels, teaching our children how to check in and identify their emotions and to observe what these emotions can feel like. Dr. Buzenko's mission is to inspire and empower mental health professionals, educators, and families in promoting resilience and long-term success for children and teens. So let's jump right in and learn how we can sprinkle mindfulness in our lives and the lives of our children. Caroline, thank you so much for joining us today. Welcome to Mindfulness Off the Cushion. 
It's a wonderful being here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Do us a favor. Maybe we could start with that phrase, mindfulness off the cushion, and what it means to you. That means to me, not, you know, sitting and meditating in a structured practice, taking time out of our day to do something separate. It's living life now in the moment, moment by moment in the everyday things that we do. And it's, I mean, that's where life is, is in our mindful moments. And so it's not taking time out of our life to go. It's really just being present in life throughout our day. That's a beautiful sentiment right there, right? To be present in our lives and all the moments that we have in our lives. I'm sure that we all have favorite moments outside of like the meditation cushion or outside of a formal practice where perhaps it's easier for us to connect with the present. What are some activities or some things that you do outside of your formal meditation practice that kind of encourages or rekindles this um, desire to be present in your life? There's a couple of things. It's interesting because I used to be, I've got to meditate. I, I remember doing a 10-day meditation retreat. We meditated. You didn't talk to anybody the whole time. You meditated 12, 20 hours a, a day for the whole 10 days. And so I, I got really good. I'm going to do two hours of meditating every single day. And then it was like, okay, well, maybe one hour and then maybe 10 minutes. And I forgot the whole purpose of it, right? That whole mindfulness piece. So then I was like, well little things every time I wash my hands and it became this should. And I think we get so caught up in shoulding all over ourselves all the time that I found it really hard. It was just another chore. And, and I realized that wasn't the point of mindfulness. I want to be able to live my life. And so when I was coming to how am I going to make this work, I started focusing on my values and what's important to me. And I think that exactly what you were saying, those moments where we just do naturally, we, we want to make sure that we cherish them. It was those things. I didn't need to make it a should. And so the things that you ask me, I do oxytocin hugs. So every time I've been separated from my child or from my husband, so it could be at the end of a night's sleep. So first thing in the morning, at the end of a work day or school day, we have an oxytocin hug. For me, it would I would love for it to be a minute, but I've I've my you know teenage daughter, we've cut it down to nine seconds because you need at least nine seconds to have the oxytocin <laughs> okay. going in your brain. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But, but in that we feel the hug. You know, it's being there, feeling the warmth, feeling the love, literally feeling there's times where you can feel the oxytocin actually kicking in. We just feel that love. That's the thing for me every day. And sometimes I get the, ah, oh, I don't want an oxytocin hug, but they just know, like, this is part of what we're going to do. And yeah. you can feel them melt into it. So for me, that's a huge piece that I, I know every day that I'm doing. The other really important thing for me in my life is my physical health. And I have a lot of chronic pain things. And so anything that I do physically, I do, I work out every morning and I do yoga. Yoga is fantastic to be mindful. You're really paying attention to how your body is and how it's stretching and how it's feeling. And even when I'm lifting weights, I'm consciously connecting with my body. Am I in the proper stance and formation to be able to do a squat or I, I do lots of heavy lifting. So making sure I've got that proper stance, that's a huge piece of mindfulness that I know I do every single day. It's just part of, it's so automatic. I don't even need to think about it. 
can I be honest here? This is a little bit embarrassing, but I remember, geez, four or five years ago when my wife first discovered mindfulness and she was explaining to me what it meant. I had this light bulb go off in my head and I'm like, oh, that's amazing. So now I understand the, I guess, the relationship between mindfulness and yoga. And I never got that ever before. I never like, okay, now I get it. You focus on your body and your breath. And what I love about the examples that you use, Caroline, is that they go from the soft and tender to the active, to like the badass of like lifting weights, right? So it shows the adaptability that mindfulness could potentially have in our lives. Everything from just giving a a hug and know that you're hugging, right? Because that's really what you're what you're intentionally doing in those nine second oxytocin hugs, which I love the word, by the way, we should, should definitely take <laughs> that right there. Yeah. And then moving into like the yoga and obviously, you know, with the yoga, it kind of makes it kind of forces you a little bit to be present because you, you know, you're putting yourself in difficult postures and so forth. So connecting with the breath and then with weights. Right. And it's funny because I've read some, some of these, you know, big boys that are, take their lifting weights very seriously. And they were talking about how after each rep, one of the things that they do is they bring awareness to the muscle. And just that by bringing awareness to the muscle, they say, and they swear that it actually helps the muscle grow. And it makes sense, right? I do that too. Yeah, Yeah, I visualize. Yeah, yeah, that's part of it too. I love that. So let's do a quick, just a quick overview I'm really interested, Caroline, in your interest in social and emotional regulation. Can you give us a quick intro of what specifically you do on a daily basis? Where is your passion? In terms of my work, I work with a lot of children, teenagers, families, managing big emotions. Anxiety is the big one, especially with COVID the past two years. That certainly becomes the focus of most of my work. And learning about the brain, and we do a lot of mindfulness pieces with this, you know, when we're looking at the emotional regulation. So I'm always starting with first awareness and understanding, and and then we kind of go into all of the things that we need to do to be able to regulate the emotions. But that's the bulk of my work. And a lot of it is the parent coaching and them tapping into their own emotion regulation and their own awareness of their anxiety. Cause it's usually parents own stress and worries, you know, as we're transitioning into the new school year, who's my kiddo's teacher going to be and who, what friends are going to be in the class. So just bringing that awareness is a huge piece of the work that I do. And I love it when we have these successful sessions where it's just, they they feel so empowered because they know we're not eliminating feelings. We're not eliminating anxiety and stress. It's bringing our awareness to it. And I find that there is such empowerment around that. And now Caroline, for listeners out there, you are a trained psychologist in the, in Canada, in the United States, or just Canada. How how did that background in psychology help you prepare for this? Or was it something that you kind of discovered later on in the career? How is Canadian psychology different or similar to like American psychology? Yeah, yeah. So I am I am a registered psychologist in Canada and a couple of different provinces up here. 
And how I got fell into it, and it was kind of a fall into it because I was going to be an actress. I was going to move to LA and that's what I was going to do. But, you know, I think I was 25 when my mom's like, what are you going to do with your life? And I always had an interest in psychology. Uh, We have, you know, my grandmother's diagnosed with schizophrenia, which was always fascinating to me. And I had struggled with anxiety in my life too. And so I went back to school. It's all study the human behavior. I thought it would still help me with my acting anyways, you know, secretly still, still engaging in that. But what brought me to anxiety is because I was dealing with a lot of anxiety myself. And then I had children and they had anxiety and I was taking them to professionals and nothing was getting better. Nothing was getting better. And so I actually developed an anxiety compass because I'm like, there's got to be, <laughs> we can't, can't be struggling with anxiety. And I had found what works for me. And I started realizing it works for my kiddos. And as I started practicing, I'm like, this works with everybody that I'm working with. And that's where I really niched down into anxiety. It wasn't what I came into psychology to do specifically, but that's where I ended up because I saw There's all of these mistakes that are happening, even other mental health professionals. And we've created a society of quick fixes. You know, I can't get to sleep, take a a sleeping pill. I feel anxious, take an Ativan. And so I I knew that there had to be a, a different way. And so I created an anxiety compass that kind of walks through how we actually manage that. So how we practice it doesn't matter if we're in Canada, in States, in Zimbabwe. I mean, anxiety is anxiety is anxiety. It's all about how we respond to it. Mm. It's amazing because anxiety seems to be the most common entry point or big why for discovering mindfulness. For those who may not fully understand the relationship there, can you quickly cover with us how mindfulness helps overcome or change one's relationship with anxiety? There are so many ways. I don't even think we've got enough time to go through all of the ways. And and I I do want to say, you know, I, I think the biggest thing is we don't focus on the outcome. So while our relationship and our responses do change through mindfulness, we're not forcing an outcome. And I think that that's something that's important, you know, first thing that I ever say is, I don't want you to expect leaving here, you're going to use these strategies that your anxiety is going to be gone. It's not, it's still going to be there. It's how we tolerate it, right? It's how we handle that. And so when I look at mindfulness, it brings awareness and awareness is the number one thing because we've got this trickster Loki brain, our amygdala, it's the emotional brain. It's the strongest, fastest, oldest part of our brain. It likes to suck us in. It's kind of like a cult leader, right? It sucks us in our prefrontal cortex, our thinking, problem-solving, rational brain. Its job is to tame that Loki, to tame that emotional brain and to be like, it's okay. I'm not being eaten by a lion. It's just a science test. You know, it's not a big deal. So that anxiety and those big emotions, it likes to suck in our thinking brain into rumination. Because if we start ruminating and worrying and thinking it goes offline, like the Wi-Fi shut off. And so there is no rational thinking. There is nothing happening. We get sucked into the worries and it gets bigger. So mindfulness helps us bring awareness to what's actually happening. It allows our prefrontal cortex to stay online, to do its job, create some distance to be able to realize, hey, Loki, I know you're trying to freak me out right now. 
So that awareness is the number one thing. And we we get curious. We start playing detective. And that's what mindfulness is about. It's not about necessarily sitting on a mat trying to meditate. It's being like, hmm, what's going on here? And we take that objective stance where we can see, oh, my heart is starting to pound. Well, that makes sense. Of course it is. Because my brain's trying to trick me to think that I'm going to be eaten by a lion and have to run away. And so it's got to pump blood through my body really fast. So we just have that objective, curious stance. And and it's really getting to that place of curiosity. Because if we're curious, our prefrontal cortex can't get spun offline. And so that's a huge piece. So we see the awareness, which is so critical. I mean, that's probably the biggest thing. And we see just the executive skills. So it's awareness, it's attention, it's cognitive flexibility, all of those things that we want to develop in our kiddos anyway, they're strengthened through mindfulness. As a, if a parent is listening to this, how could they not wish this for their children, right? How could they not wish this ability or capacity or skill to become more aware of what's happening in the mind-body system as it's happening in real time, right? And then like being able to put like identifiers, words, names, be curious about it, not so judgmental about it, right? So this is all... Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful stuff. Psychological flexibility, beautiful, beautiful stuff. What do you think are some of those barriers that are commonly experienced by either children or teens or adults when it comes to approaching their mind-body system in this way? Well, the first is not understanding the nature of anxiety. So I teach a lot about that and, ta- and, ta- and externalizing it. You know, I think kids hear all of these messages that they were born anxious. You know, my parents and grandparents are anxious and they think it's become, you know, genetically encoded in who they are. So th- there's some of those kinds of pieces. But I think a lot of it, I mean, it, it's all about the environment. I know we can get into the nature nurture debate, but a lot of it first comes from parents. I'm always looking at them. You are the role models from time kids are babies. They're socially referencing to you. Is this little spidery thing okay? Is this new person okay? Is this okay to eat? They're always checking in. And our nervous systems speak to one another and they can pick up a lot of that. So we get caught in this web of emotion and now you know, our prefrontal cortex is hijacked and we get caught <laughs> in this big overwhelm. And so Parents are freaking out, even just rushing in the morning. They're freaking out. I'm going to be late for my meeting. You got to get your shoes on. Where's your back? You know, all of those things. I think it's the the grind of every day. So I find a lot of times when we look at some of the barriers, sometimes it's excuses. Time is a big one, right? I got to get, so I'm just going to do it for you, or I'm just going to freak out and we'll manage it later. It's always another time we will work on these kinds of things. We don't know how to manage our own emotions. So it always starts with, uh, you know, I always want to see parents first before I ever see kids. Because if, if if I'm throwing a kiddo back into an environment to use some mindfulness, for example, or to use some of their strategies, but their parents are still freaking out. So I'm always using that, right, where, where, where we can look at that. Really, I think it's a matter of being very intentional. You know, when we're looking at some of these barriers, we just get caught up, like I said, in everyday life. Whether it's time or I want to avoid a fight. So I don't want to work on the anxiety in the first place, right? And so I'm just going to avoid a fight or it it becomes a chore. Like there's so many different things that end up becoming a problem in terms of 
you know, it's just one more thing in a busy life and one more thing that my kids that I'm expecting them to do. And one more thing that they're going to roll their eyes about. I remember trying to do like formal little meditation stuff with my girls. I've got videos of them. My youngest one, she was about 18 months old and she's got her hands like this on her lap and she's going, hmm. And then she like slowly rolls over and then her sister rolls over the other way and then they start kicking their feet and, you know, and then it's just like, ah, forget it. So I think that there's just so many of those I like to externalize them. And I talk to parents, what are those traps that are getting in your way? And I think every family is different. You might have a sensory kid, but look for those time robbers or for those yeah, buts. It's usually the yeah, but I'd love to do mindfulness, Caroline, but right. And so it's looking out for all of those kinds of things. So I hear first and foremost, if you're a parent out there and you want your child to learn these great self-awareness and self-regulation skills that the first person that your kids are going to learn from are you. So how can you as a parent in your busy, in the busyness of life, how can you embody these skills, right? And through the embodiment process, your child is is going to be able to pick up on that. Like, oh, this is how we handle stress. Because kids are just, they get it all. They watch, they see it all. They hear it all. And they certainly absorb it all. Are Canadian parents as stressed out as American parents? <laughs> I think so. I think so. Yeah. Worldwide. Worldwide. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. And, yeah. and actually going through COVID, we see that parents are actually far more stressed out than people who didn't have children. I mean, COVID was stressful for everybody, but parents definitely have a lot more stress on their plate. Mm-hmm. Let's stay on the topic of parents and parenting just for a little bit longer. What do you see are the most successful ways to get children involved in practicing mindfulness? Well, I always think mindfulness, and I'm telling parents, mindfulness is a proactive activity. And we know, you know, when we, we look at antecedent-focused mindfulness, is usually, even in the research, the most successful. So we're not waiting for it. <laughs> I see it all the time where parents are like, just calm down. You know, their kids freaking out. Just calm down. Take a deep breath. Let's be mindful. And the kid's like, I am calm, right? If there's already emotion, it's so much harder to get our prefrontal cortex back online. So it's being proactive. What I tell parents, rather than just like how I said at the beginning, I tried adding in, you know, an extra practice that can be challenging. And especially when we're looking at all the yeah, buts, and I don't have time and I love it, but you know, there's something else getting in the way. What are you already doing? I'm already saying hello to my children and giving them hugs. So incorporate mindfulness into that. One other one that I love doing at the end of the day is pizza chocolate, right? And I do, my kids will wolf down a whole chocolate bar. I only need one tiny square because I'm I'm, I'm eating that mindful. I'm already eating chocolate. So why can't we do that mindfully? Making it a regular part of your routine and incorporating that I often have parents look at the routines that they're already doing and how can you incorporate that into, I want to build, you know, especially when I'm looking at anxiety and emotion regulation, I want to build emotional literacy along with mindfulness. And so an activity that I have is I have either emotion cards or a word wheel, an emotion wheel, depending on the age you look and you check in and this could be a dinner time thing. You're sitting around talking anyway, check in on the wheel or on the cards. How are you feeling? Where do you feel that in your body? So maybe you're feeling tired. Where do you feel that in my eyes? What does that feel like? Heavy, right? We're really already creating that 
that mindfulness in the body and where does anxiety show up? That's that's how we, we, we regulate our emotions by dropping into the body. And so that could be a very simple activity. It takes 30 seconds, go around and we're all doing it, right? We're all working on this together. So I find building it into routines that you're already doing anyway is great. Doing creative things. I find creating is the basis of all mindfulness because we're usually in, entrenched in whatever it is we're doing, painting, baking, cooking, you know, we're taking in smells and we're, we're just noticing what it is that we're doing. So I, I think all of those things can be helpful. Making it fun, you know, if it's just another, ah, uh, right, then, then nobody's ever going to want to do it. It's always going to be a, a, a fight. So even just little things like it, maybe it's just standing up from the dinner table, noticing how are you standing up, changing positions from sitting to standing or from standing to sitting, everybody stop where you are, walk differently to the dinner table, right? Think about, and so maybe you're walking backwards, maybe you're walking sideways, maybe you're walking like a crab. And, and, and that's a moment of pay attention. Where do you notice that in your body? Where do you feel the most weight? You know, it's, we're all walking to the table anyway. So the biggest thing is being intentional, you know? So if parents were to say, I want to work on mindfulness, What's one thing today that I can focus on, whether it's for myself or for my family and just be intentional. And then at the end of the day, how did I do what got in the way and how do I address that for tomorrow? What did I learn to take it into tomorrow that I can do differently, even for two seconds, right? One little thing. So I think that that, that can be really helpful and, and focusing on what's important to you. Family. I love dinner time. That's an important time. So how can we stay connected as a family? One big thing, though, is always highlighting the successes because our brain, that trickster emotional brain wants us to forget to be mindful because then it's more powerful when we're not mindful. And so bridging back to where are we most successful when we're doing mindfulness and capitalizing on those times where you are more, if you know, five o'clock to six o'clock making dinner is witching hour. That's not the time to maybe be mindful at first, right? Like find build on your successes. So I think that that's really important. Just finding that routine and being intentional every day. It takes 20 seconds. How am I going to incorporate it in a routine or get a routine going? The more automated it becomes, and you're just always at dinner checking in. We 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 do. We actually have this talk box. And so it's just an automatic thing. As we sit down, somebody's grabbing the talk box. It's just what we do. And if we don't, it's weird. Like, whoa, why did nobody grab it? Right. So if you make it so automatic, you don't even think about it. It just becomes part of your life. So that's like a million ways that yeah. you've like <laughs> listed, right? I'm seeing for all you parents out there, if you haven't grasped one practical little integration tip, right? Like what I hear is first, like start where you are, right? Like what, are, what I'm saying, list all the things that you already do day to day in your household. And now can we be more intentional about those day to day activities that we already do, right? And then like, what I love about this approach also is like be creative in using those day-to-day activities in some new, more intentional, heartfelt, connective way. Can the serving of breakfast not just be like, here's your bacon and eggs? Can it be like a moment of like saying thank you to each other? And that right there, it's just like it's like we're sprinkling mindfulness throughout the day. 
for all these activities. I worked with a family one time that were all like into music. They loved music. So the father came up with this little ritual when like there was like any kind of tension in the family. Somebody would have like the power to go and like play a song in the stereo really loud. And everybody would have to like dance to it. Mm -hmm. Like think about that exercise right there. Right. And that's the parent being creative and adapting to what's going to resonate with, with the son. So this forces you parents to be in tuned with like the needs of your children and not like your needs, your agenda, but your children. And they can take ownership of it too. You know, if you're like, I've got too many things, it's one more thing for me to think about. I mean, if you're making it fun, anyways, they're going to want to, you know, like my kids are asking, where's the talk box? I remember once when I was, you know, just a really stressful time in life, my little one started saying puppy. It was like, mommy, you're getting stressed. She was itty bitty, right? She'd go puppy because kids are very perceptive. And it was so good, that cue word, not that we want to make it our kids' responsibility to, to, you know, for us to be able to regulate our emotions. But as a family, if we start seeing what do you want your cue word to be, if we can see that you're getting stressed or irritable, we can say this cue word. But it was so powerful that I would stop and I would drop into my body almost automatically because I'd hear the word puppy and then I'd be like, oh, yeah. Right. And so kids and she loved it then. And I'm like, dude, thank you so much for doing that because I feel so calm and now I feel connected and now I scoop, scoop her up and get an oxytocin hug. So I think that we can charge our kids to take that role as well. I would imagine, Caroline, that some of these principles would translate over into the classroom as well. I understand you've done some work in this area. So why don't you share with us some perspectives on the classroom? Yeah, the same, same sort of idea, right? In terms of what are we already doing? I always strongly, I talk a lot about executive functioning deficits and, you know, and we know when we're stressed and anxious, you know, our executive functions aren't working fantastic. And kids only have so many blocks of energy. If we think of their gas tank of executive functioning and if, and a lot of families, even my own, and I'm aware of this, we rush in the morning. I kind of already mentioned that. So if kids are getting rushed in the morning and they're told, oh yeah, go brush your teeth. Why don't you brush your teeth? You've been doing it for 13 years. Why do I have to remind you every single day? That stress uses up so much of their battery power. So the one thing that I often tell teachers is think about your own morning, probably stressed to get into school. Your kids are probably coming into school already aroused with less ability to function. So starting off your day, first thing in the morning, how can you ground kids in, right? And maybe it's creating a routine and a ritual from the minute they cross that threshold into the classroom. Maybe they got to walk on their tiptoes. Again, stuff that they're already doing is just changing how they're coming in to be mindful. And, and I would say collaborate with the class of how we can do this. Maybe it's the minute you sit down on your desk, feeling your butt. Kids love that, right? What does your butt feel like on the chair? <laughs> <laughs> who wants to pick a body part? We've got to be careful, right? But who wants to pick a body part? Your elbow. Okay, Johnny, perfect. Elbow today. What does your left elbow feel like today? Mm. And everybody drops in for a moment into their body. That's right? brilliant. Yeah. So it's, that's, you know, again, little, it takes two seconds, right? And they just know, and now they're excited. Who's going to pick the body part today, right? Or I've got something to think about. So 
you, th- there's those kinds of things transitioning, just like I said at dinner time, you know, focusing as you stand up from your desk, noticing that change in posture. I want you to walk mindfully to go grab your books to change your class or, or whatever that is, or even just a grounding. I mean, before our little interview here, Claudio did a fantastic little grounding exercise and it's just, it took no time at all just to be able to settle down. Sometimes it's shaking, you know, like I'll do, because some kiddos are just too silly and they're falling out of their chair. So to do any sort of, you know, sitting meditation. So maybe we're going to shake. And where do you notice that most in your body? Or one thing that I love doing actually is I have kids stand like zombies. So their hands straight out in front of them. Yeah. And and you're going to try to beat me. So I'm going to keep my arms up and you're going to try to keep your arms up. But we're going to talk about what's happening in your body. So a lot of times we might feel tension in our neck and burning in our shoulders, right? And then the forearms, and we can start talking about that. So there's experiential things that we can do just to get out of here into our body, into this moment with each other. We're only limited by our own creativity, really. Uh, and I think as a teacher right there, what, like, what I found working with children is that like you have to be attuned to the energy level of the child. If the child is high energy in that moment, the last thing they're going to do is want to sit quietly. So use that energy kind of like an Aikido move, right? Like you use the opponent's energy, but in this case, you're using their energy to teach them something about their mind-body system, right? So it's like what you're encouraging is here, like if you have a child and there's a lot of energy in there, let's shake it out. Let's just like bring more energy to the body, but let's do it with awareness. And then what I add is like, okay, shake it, shake it, shake it. And then just pause and bring awareness to that. And now shake it, shake it, shake it. And the kids love that. They can do that a couple of times. So that's so helpful. Saying I think these are really, really good practical integrations in the classroom, at home. And all the time we're teaching kids about themselves, about their energy, about their mood their emotions and their thoughts and their actions and their words. Beautiful. Mindfulness Off the Cushion is sponsored by the Austin Mindfulness Center, the premier mental health counseling center in Texas for mindfulness-based therapy, education, and coaching. If you're an individual or couple struggling with stress, anxiety, depression, relationship issues, or you're just looking to better equip yourself to gracefully navigate these turbulent times, you can visit us online at austinmindfulness.org and request an appointment today. I often tell kids how uh, their body is actually smarter than their brain. We have billions more neurons in our stomach than in our brain. And so our body feels things. And that's why we want to drop into the body. So the example of shaky, shaky, pause, feel what's in your body. Same thing, like tense up all your muscles, everything, clench your butt cheeks, clench everything, and then let it go. And they can actually feel that. And the body so many kids and adults are so disconnected from what's happening in their body. And that's the problem. They're all up here ruminating and react. They're hijacked. And so I do think that I focus, that's why I want to focus so much on the body piece. Let me jump in here. The importance of the body can be extremely foreign to many who are learning 
mindfulness for the first time. And I'll, I'll share that it took me probably a solid year to really just like to understand the importance of it, to maybe even experience the importance of it. Now let's pull in again, mindfulness off the cushion. Let's talk about in comparison to that, the formal meditation practice or mindfulness practice, the formal meditation that we do. Why is the formal meditation practice important and how does it relate to that relationship that we have with our body and how it impacts us throughout the day off the cushion? Well, the more we practice, right? It's all proactive. The more we practice, we are doubling our neurons in our brain. We are, and and every time we practice, we're myelinating those pathways. So essentially myelination is like pavement. We are, are paving those pathways to mindfulness. And so the more we're able to practice, the more those moment to moment moments in life, we become more aware of them. We're less an autopilot. And so that's the bridge we, we we are paving, right? If you think the first time you try to get to a waterfall, nobody ever's been there. You probably got a machete cutting through the jungle, right? It takes a long time. It's very effortful. And, and that's kind of what it's like when we're first building that practice. But over time, the more you do it, now we've got a bit of a pathway, right? Now we want the world to see. So now we're going to go pave a road to get to that waterfall. And it's the same thing that happens in our brain. The more that we're putting in that practice, regularly every day, even short little times throughout the day, form a little practice where we're actually focusing on our breath or or, or doing whatever it is that we're doing, that all adds up, right? And we're creating those bundles and myelination and paving the way. So it becomes easier over time. And then we're less reactive too. And we're supporting emotion regulation with the kiddos. You just introduced me to a brand new word that, well, it's not new to the world, but it's new to me, myelination. So we're paving these new pathways in our brains, which truly do impact us off the cushion throughout the day, throughout our lives, not just internally, but the way that we act, the way that we behave and treat others. That's beautiful. And yet I'll throw in this crazy little asterisk because we know that mindfulness itself is simple and yet difficult. We're not supposed to be formally meditating with like this goal in mind, right? This striving. (laughs) And that's almost impossible for some of us out there. Yeah. And I find I never prescribe meditation, like any formal practice to anybody, especially with my anxious clients, because they feel more anxious when I sit down to try to meditate. I was like that too at the beginning, but it's because we have that goal. I sit down and meditate. I should clear my mind, clear my mind completely and feel better afterwards. And they don't. We have, you know, because their monkey mind, we all know this. Our monkey mind jumps all over the place. We don't clear our minds and then we feel more stressed out. But but that's it. That's not the point. It's about the awareness. Oh, there goes my monkey mind. Let's bring it back. It's not clearing the mind. It's being aware of what's happening, right? So I think, you know, if we were to talk about, and sometimes I do have people say, I want to set this up in my life, that's fine. But just know we're not striving for any specific outcome. It is what it is, right? I'm saying in that very act right there of sitting with the breath, let's say, and becoming aware when the mind has wandered away from the breath, 
recognizing that the mind has wandered away from the breath, and then returning kindly, escorting your attention back to the breath. That act of awareness that the breath has, that the mind has wandered away from the breath, and then escorting the mind back to the breath, that's a see, that's a function of metacognition. That's a function of I'm saying that's a mental rep, like you, that's out you on, on on the gym right there, right? That's you doing a bicep. That's you doing a squat right there, right? So as I like to always encourage, because this is like perhaps the biggest, this is why people quit practicing a formal practice, is they say, my mind wanders away a million times. And I say, can you become aware a million times that your mind has wandered away in those 10 minutes? And if you can become aware a million times, can you escort it back a million times? And if you do that, that's a hell of a workout. Think about what you've, I'm saying, just the metacognition of the awareness of the awareness itself. That's something that we're not very familiar with doing. And it takes, I understand that is unfamiliar territory. For many of us, and unfamiliarity begets a lot of judgment sometimes and a lot of negative critique. But in my schooling, that's the formal meditation feeds the informal meditation, and the informal meditation feeds the formal meditation. So it's a bi directional loop that is happening there, uh, you know, a seepage. That's a very non science y word right there, right? Seepage. But seepage. But what I'm saying, think about our children or in their children and even adults, this ability to sit with oneself, it's very difficult. And I think that in today's society, maybe, maybe it was a little bit different 50, 100 years ago when there perhaps wasn't so much competing for your, your child's attention. In today's society, there is a lot competing. And that little dopamine hit that your child gets when they look at that Instagram feed, that's powerful. Well, there's so much that I, like, my mind's just going, choo, choo, choo. Like, there's so many (laughs) topics that we can go into. But, you know, that delayed gratification piece, I mean, just your last point, it's becoming extinct because I think about, you know, the example that I love giving is when my girls call my grandpa, I remember that one, one day they called and got this beep, beep, beep. And they're like, grandpa's phone, like something's wrong with his phone. And I'm like, he doesn't have call waiting. It means he's on the phone and it's busy. And they'd never heard that before. And, and, you know, they can sit on Netflix and binge watch a whole season. Like I loved Quantum Leap. I had to wait till next Tuesday to see what was going to happen. Right. And then you have to wait the whole summer to get to the new season. They don't have that. They didn't have to sit through commercials. They didn't have, like, it's just bam, bam, bam. So time is ish. And that's become a problem, right? Because wait, wait, so, that, so that again, time is ish? Ish, I-S-H, it's ish. Yeah, I love that. And so, and they want things now, 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 now. And so there's this impatience, right? And and delayed gratification, it's, it is being able to <laughs> sit in that moment of waiting, right? And just being not, we, we were just trying to stimulate. And that's the problem with social media. And, and you're right, you know, pre- social media it wasn't even television because i think every generation is like oh yeah when i was 
a kid in television, like that was a big problem. Everybody was concerned. Gen Z and Gen Alpha is very unique from any other. And it was the same thing with radio, right? There's always, they're, you know, demons and whatever. It's going to ruin our kid's brain. But social media, truly, you're seeing huge differences and, and increases. I mean, from 2007, when smartphone came out, we saw a huge rise in depression. And then again, I think it was 2015 when like 95% of our kiddos had a phone, a smartphone, huge increases, anxiety, depression, suicidality. There's a huge correlation with this. And part of that is the immediate there. You're right. They're not comfortable sitting with themselves. They would, and there's research showing like they would rather be tortured than just sit with themselves. And, and a lot of times, you know, especially my teenagers who who have like panic attacks they say they're very aware i don't need to practice mindfulness i'm very aware of what's going on with my body but they're trying to push it away right and that's the problem it's being able to sit with it yeah you're aware but you're trying to push it away you're trying to have a different outcome mm. oh but i gotta challenge you there <laughs> you, no that's deep right there the outcome yeah, yeah. Yeah. So obviously it takes intention to make the time to practice mindfulness or just to sit with oneself, but perhaps we shouldn't focus too much. We shouldn't be too outcome focused, right? Yeah. I I like setting it up like an experiment because I want to foster that curiosity that I talked about earlier. And so oftentimes, whether it's a child or even an adult, I said, we're going to be detectives. We're going to set up a, an experiment. And like any scientist, we might have a hypothesis, but we have no idea what it's going to, to be a good scientist. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what the outcome. So we're just going to collect data, right? And we're just going to collect data. And so we're fostering that curiosity. And that's kind of what mindfulness is. I don't know what it's going to be like today. Today I was doing my, I always, after I work out, I do my stretching yoga and then I do a meditation and somebody let the dog downstairs and she came right up to my face and started licking me. So I put some a towel over my face, but my hands were out because I was in, you know, uh, down, laying down. So she started licking my hand. So now I'm getting, I don't know. I didn't know. I wasn't expecting that. Right. So then I put my hands in my sleeves, but the towel would come up over my chin. So now she's, like, I'm just, you know, now I'm distracted by this dog who just wants to lick me. So, you know, you just never know. And I, I think that that's the key piece is being able to take in whatever that moment is, whatever it is, whatever life is throwing you, whatever is here now in that moment, moment by moment, without worrying about it being perfect or. And that right there is another reason why people quit right there or they say you know this is not for me because that underlying desire for things to be different than they actually are is so beguiling in our conscious or even subconscious mind right it hides itself there you can tell yeah i'm totally like you know what you're you're verbalizing what you're truly i'm totally aware of my anxiety but Yes, they're aware of it, but there is that underlying current of like, I don't even want to face it because I don't want it here. And that aversion can hide itself in so many different ways. And what we're asking ourselves in this practice is, how is it that we can be present amidst this aversion? Can we make the aversion itself part of this practice of like, 
oh, be curious and be scientific. Oh, this is what it feels like to be me experiencing not wanting this anxiety in this moment. And that's, I'm saying, that takes courage, vulnerability. It's a lot of things. And that's so powerful. When I look at anxiety, anxiety becomes a disorder when we don't learn to manage the experience of anxiety. It has nothing to do with the trigger. It could be dogs, it could be needles, it could be flying, it could be tsunamis, whatever it is. It's not about the trigger. It's that the discomfort. I can't handle the discomfort of anxiety. And that in and of itself can become anxiety. And so we know people recover. Really, it's not that they don't, we can never eliminate anxiety. It's just that they can master anxiety when they learn that they can manage anxiety, right? And so it's exactly what you're saying. Instead of trying to push it away, they're going to have lifelong anxiety. But if I can sit with it and face it, that's directly correlated with mastering being able to manage that anxiety. Caroline, you have a podcast. Tell us a bit about what your focus is. Yeah, I have two podcasts, actually. One is really focused on anxiety, emotion regulation, everything about emotions and the brain and how we can support that. My other one's a parenting podcast, my husband and I, just all things all things parenting. And I usually cry a lot on that one. My anxiety one's a little bit more professional. My parent one, yeah, I cry a lot. I found out uh, Sean Connery died on one of them just a couple weeks ago and uh, the big cry baby. I stay away from the news. It's hard to be mindful and <laughs> when you're caught up in the news. So anyway, yeah, those are my two. Parents of the years, the parenting one and overpowering emotions is my anxiety. Wonderful. And so we we can find you there on uh, wherever we listen to podcasts. Not everyone is a podcast listener. So by chance, if we have someone listening to the, this podcast, but not necessarily interested in listening to another one, where can they find you online? Just at my website, drcarolinebazenko.com. Wonderful. I'm curious about to know like a little bit about because this is the first time that we've actually interviewed somebody in another country. Hmm. I feel like we've only interviewed people in the United States so far. Maybe I, I think that's I right. Wrong, yeah, be wrong about that. But what is it like living in Canada? And what do you think are some of the good things that the country is doing as far as mental health? What are some of the challenges or you know, critiques that you may have about mental health and in, in Canada? What would you tell Americans about Canadians? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's so interesting. We always talk this talk, like, why does everybody think that Canadians have this funny accent and say A after everything, right? And, we're, and my daughter actually brought up all of the things that people believe about Canadians. Like, everybody plays hockey and it's winter year long, you know, all of these things. We actually just drove down to Kalispell. It's about, you know, we have a cabin about half an hour from the border and we just went into Montana to do some shopping. I'm like, let's go experience Target, right? And they were like, everyone is so friendly here. And I know that that's a common belief about Canadians being, and they're like, Canadians are not this friendly. Like these people are way friendlier. You know, there are benefits. We are friendly, but I think just COVID has been very heavy and there's just this apathy that seems to have set on everyone. But I work with, you know, I work with school boards uh, in the States in New Zealand. I work with families from all around the world. And, and a lot of the, the issues are exactly the same. Like I said, anxiety is anxiety, anxiety, wherever we are, emotion regulation, wherever we are, and, and our brain is the same, wherever we are, how to process that. 
we do have the benefit of, you know, free healthcare here. So I know that the accessibility and resources might be a little bit better, but psychology is not covered in our healthcare. So it's still, you know, if you have insurance, then you can, otherwise it's out of pocket. So I think that we still have a long way to go in terms of accessibility and resources. We do have Anxiety Canada, which is known pretty worldwide, like a lot of organizations actually redirect back to Anxiety Canada. So if that's another great resource, if anybody's looking for anything, just to help with, you know, anxiety and emotion regulation types of things. But I think we're all struggling with similar issues and maybe accessibility looks a little bit different. I know here in Alberta, psychologists are plentiful. So we don't have maybe as long wait lines for accessing services as other provinces and probably even the states. But what's the weather like in Alberta? It's hot. I think it, it's like 35 degrees, which is, uh, I don't know, over a hundred, <laughs> okay. over a okay. hundred there. It's hot. It's, it's stinking hot here. It can get really cold though. It can get to like with wind chill minus 50. Yeah. That's 95 here. 95 Fahrenheit. Okay. Yeah, that's pretty hot for okay. sure. So Caroline, as we wrap up here, what might be one takeaway that you could share with our listeners? Maybe the biggest one you've got. Yeah, for me, especially for parents, because there's so much parent guilt, I always joke, you know, here's your baby and five pounds of guilt compounded daily for the rest of your life. And especially when we we know we want to do good by our kids, and then every day, ah, oh, I screamed at them again. Ah, oh, we didn't do mindfulness again. The number one thing that I tell parents is kind of what I've already talked about. I mean, it's looking at what did I do well today? What got in the way? And what did I learn that I can do a little bit better tomorrow? You know, I think we take in all of this information. Ignorance is a bliss. Sometimes if you didn't know what you're supposed to be doing, I'm just going to parent how I think I should parent, we would all be happy. So it's not about beating yourself up. It's taking this information. And making a plan and how can I be purposeful tomorrow? And it might go sideways and that's okay. So what can I do the next day and the next day? That's the thing. One small little thing that I can focus focus on and do differently. That brings me back in my mind to surviving versus thriving, right? Ultimately, bringing awareness to every moment. There's a lot of healing that can be experienced there. Once one gets to some level of being healed, then we get into this area of values driven. How can I be more present for those around me? How could I respond better to a given situation, etc.? right? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, exactly. That's a beautiful message right there. Just what I hear from Carolyn, the, the takeaway for the parents is be patient, be patient with yourself, be patient with your children. I have to say that my biggest takeaway from this, from our conversation, which I thought was great, was you as a parent, you are already, you have this whole laboratory of opportunities, like your everyday activities that you do with your children. Meet your child where they're at. That is such practical wisdom right there. Meet your child where they're at. So. Thank you for that. It reinforces like what I want to teach to parents and to children as well. So I think that's really important. Thank you, Caroline. Thank you. Thank you.